0: This series is presented by Humankind Public Radio in association with the BTS Center, funding provided by the Henry Luce Foundation. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. This time, caring for people at the end of life.
1: You know, I'm privy to people's great secrets. I'm privy to, to people's great hopes and great dreams.
0: People share with you their secrets oh, on their deathbed. Oh, yeah.
1: Bed. Oh, absolutely. Things they wish they had done differently or been different or, or, or things that they cannot believe happened to them. And we don't have many opportunities in our society to hear those stories, mm. and yet we all carry them. We all carry them. And so I think that has shaped how I want to live my life, which is just to be open, to be humble, and to be aware that this is a less-than-perfect world, and all we can do is the best we can do.
0: That's Rev. Beth Loomis, a United Church of Christ minister who's worked extensively in the hospice setting. Currently, she serves as Director of Pastoral Care at Mount Auburn Hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: Clinical 7, right, for versus-
0: Beth Loomis has observed that contemplating how well one has fared in life is a natural phase for people as they enter their last chapter. They may look back on a path strewn with regrets and sorrow, or may be filled with moments of genuine gratitude. And for many patients, the final days are often a very human mix of emotions.
1: I think the hardest peace of facing one's own mortality or end of life is saying goodbye to everything. Even though many, many a person has told me they're not afraid of being dead, but they're afraid and saddened about knowing they won't see their loved ones again. They won't see their home again, their pets, they won't be able to do what they used to enjoy doing. That is the biggest grief for most people. That and experiencing, potentially experiencing discomfort or pain, which hospice is very, very good at managing. So yeah, there's a, grief is a huge part of it, um, but there's also a flip side to that which continues to amaze me, and that is the joy people have at telling their life stories, you know, sharing with somebody who has the time to hear about what was important to them, or who they missed, or their dreams that came true and their dreams that didn't come true. Um, there's a lot of letting go that's also freeing for people. I can remember visiting a woman in, um, in our area, I won't name the town, who was the end of her life, lived in a beautiful home, looked like she had a beautiful life. She had done an awful lot, but she had had a daughter who died in a car accident in high school. One of those got in the car with a wrong friend. This is the 19, early 1970s and died. And even though she had her picture on the living room table, she almost never talked about her to anyone else. Her, her remaining family had had enough. They, they knew it was a big issue, but it had been many decades ago, and they, they didn't give her much time and space. And she, it was nothing more pleasant for her, if you can use that word, than um, telling me about her. What she was like as a child, the things that she loved to do, what, what she had hoped for for her daughter in her life, um, where she might have been if she had continued to live, their vacation spots they used to go to. So it was, in some ways, that was a huge piece of grief that happened years ago, re-triggered by her own end of life. But there was a reconciliation and a freedom that came in her, in her telling me about her daughter.
0: In my exploration of spiritual care at the end of life, a chaplain introduced me to Brian Noon, age 68, living near Worcester, Massachusetts. Brian was a school teacher and psychologist and became a vocational rehabilitation counselor for people with disabilities. He was diagnosed with cancer of the esophagus, which metastasized to the intestines. When we met, Brian was confined to bed, His wife, Rosalie, looked on. He told me the doctors had said his prognosis is fatal. Brian, this phase of your life must involve a process of letting go of things.
2: Can you describe what that's like? It's very hard. I don't want to let go. I most especially don't want to let go of Rosalie. She's the most loving person I know. And naturally, I don't want to give that up. It'll happen one day, relatively soon.
0: Brian seemed to perk up through our conversation, even while in some discomfort. Rosalie would occasionally change the settings on some medical equipment at the bedside. Because it could make him groggy, Brian had declined a full dose of pain medication before I arrived to remain alert for our interview. To what extent do you feel that you've reached acceptance around... The prospect of your
2: dying? It depends on the day. Some days I feel, well, it'll be all right. Other days, nah, I want to stay put.
0: I have to assume just about any of us would react the same way are you in a process of grieving as you gradually let go
2: I'm trying to understand my life that's the process I'm in (laughs) trying to understand you know the uh foolish things that I did, the lucky things that happened to me, the gifts that I was given, and the most wonderful woman I met. And I think, I think all the other women that I chased, I chased a lot I chased women who didn't want to be chased, and I chased women who wanted to be chased, but I didn't realize that I was given an invitation. Socially, I was pretty backward as far as that stuff was concerned for quite a while. That's all right, because Rosalie came along and taught me what it was like to be in a kind, loving relationship
0: Also present with us was Nancy Small, a Catholic oblate of the Benedictine sisters, now working as a hospice chaplain with VNA Care in Worcester.
3: For those in our care, the patients in our care, spiritual distress often comes when they're uh, looking back on their life. It's very natural at that point in life to start to look back on life and ask questions about what has my life meant Um, I remember being told once that everyone needs to know that their life has mattered, that their life has had meaning. So sometimes at that point, people are looking back, and they're thinking about either things that they did not ever do, that they wish they had done. So unfulfilled dreams, perhaps. They're looking back and having regrets about something they did or did not do, and that's causing them spiritual distress. Sometimes the distress is... um, the thought of leaving their loved ones, uh, leaving behind those they love, and concerns about the well-being of their loved ones when they're no longer there. Sometimes they feel as if they're abandoning people that they love um, because they're they're sick and they're dying and they're not going to be able to be a part of the future, and they feel as if they're they're guilty in some way about that. Sometimes the spiritual distress comes when they're thinking about the fear of dying. Um, So, for example, it's not unusual for people to be fearful about what the dying process is going to be like. Will there be pain? Will I be able to be comfortable? Will I be in agony when I die?
2: Dying happens to us all. When we're told we have a fatal illness, it's just one, two, three right in our face. Otherwise, we're walking around psychically protected from the idea that death is inevitable.
0: Has that psychic protection now been pierced for you?
2: Oh hell yes, pierced, for sure. You know, it's gonna happen. There are some nights when I go to bed, I think, is this the day I wake up dead? I
4: don't know. At first I was devastated, totally beyond devastation when I found out about Brian's prognosis. And I guess it has taken me several months um, to let it settle.
0: Rosalie Noon, Brian's wife.
4: During this process, um, Brian's illness has brought me closer to God. Very much so. At first, I was very angry with him, and I didn't want to go to church. I wouldn't, didn't want to have anything to do with prayer, nothing. And then I something, I started saying, how am I going to get through this, Jesus? How am I going to get through this? Help me. Please help me. And I started to draw back in again. I started to draw back in into my faith, uh, back into my faith again. Um, and then Nancy came. And um, our, our priest, Father Nally, came. Um, but Nancy was very instrumental in helping me build, build the, the faith, talking to her, her talking to to us. She had a way of drawing things out of you and making you, um, understand and accept and little by little I started really to have a good faith and now I know that Brian's gonna go to heaven I know it as soon as sure as you're sitting there and Nancy here Brian there I'm sure he's gonna go to heaven but I don't want him to suffer I want him to go with dignity and in peace and happiness when he goes.
0: Three weeks after our interview, Brian Noon died peacefully at home with Rosalie by his side.
5: Joys are flowing like a river Since the
4: comfort
0: people at the end of life receive spiritual support. You're listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more and to access other episodes of this podcast, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org Blessed
4: quietness
3: Holy quietness What assurance in my
0: Nancy Small, who resides with her husband in Worcester, Massachusetts, became drawn to hospice service while working as a campus chaplain at a Catholic college. Some of the students had lost family members she found it was possible to enter a person's pain and grief with a pastoral presence at an especially meaningful time in their life. Nancy Small was also an author.
3: Today I was with someone and I, I took a, a time to just pull the caregiver aside and sit with her for a while. And, And as we did, she shed some of her own tears and talked about how um, difficult it is to watch her her husband, who's been so strong all these years now, at a point where he is so weak and he can no longer stand. And her own, you know, physical strength is feeling not enough to support him when he needs a little support. And it's just, uh, you know, she, she was able to shed some tears. And in, in that shedding of tears, there's a bit of release. So for her, she's able to cry a little bit in my presence. I offer her some comfort and some care. We shared some prayer time together. And then she takes a deep breath, and she goes back to do it all over again for another day. So what's it
0: like for you to be in the presence often of people who are going to break down?
3: Well, there's a, an expression people say sometimes in, in hospice chaplaincy is, don't flinch. <laughs> so, so I think as chaplains, we simply, what we try to bring is our presence to people, and, and for them to know they are safe with us to express whatever emotion they need to express sometimes it's it's tears sometimes it's anger they just need to have uh to to release some anger they're so angry with god perhaps sometimes angry at the illness that is taking their loved one from them and they just need to release that anger in our presence um so it's it's uh there's always an intensity to it but the grace for me always comes when i'm with someone and can simply be there present to their pain holding it with them and and holding on so i can do that Um, that afterwards you just feel that release in them, that they are better for having had that time with you than they were the few moments before you started that time together.
0: Are you praying in that moment when you're resisting perhaps the temptation to flinch?
3: Mm. Indeed I am. I pray any time before I start a visit. I ask as I'm going into the visit, I simply say, God, make me an instrument of your grace and your peace and your love. And I try in that moment, I am praying as I sit there often quietly as they're expressing what they need to express, holding the quiet space or in the sacred space, uh, I am praying. I'm praying for them. I'm praying that God be present to them in this pain, to reach them in those areas that I cannot reach. And if they're open to it, I will often say a prayer in their presence, and that often helps to bring them comfort as well.
0: Chaplains are not the only caregivers who may notice the spiritual needs of patients, which can become poignant at the end of life. Social workers and members of the medical team are often sensitive to this dimension. Physician Joel Bauman, who also works with VNA Care, treats the elderly and specializes in hospice care and in pain relief. But he says that in medical school, doctors are not taught how to identify a patient's
5: spiritual distress. There's no formal training. Is, the, um, is that a gap in medical education? I, I, I think so. The, the, you know, this, this is always, there's so many gaps in medical education because we're trying to tra- train this rounded professional, um, and yet there's so many specific medicine oriented tasks and skills that need to be drilled into students to turn them into competent physicians once they're released into the world um it's, it's interesting i was just thinking about this the other day the 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 common experience when people are given challenging news and that in itself is a is a is a skill set how to give challenging or difficult news to a patient especially a new illness diagnosis or especially a bad new illness diagnosis and then the patient responds or the family member often often may respond what did he do to deserve this that's a spiritual question if there was a little bit of tutelage in how to receive and respond to a question like that that might uh, be one of those little seeds to plant in the clinician and training in picking up spiritual distress.
0: To sensitize the caregiver yeah. to be able to listen to that and process it and not be threatened by it, not
5: be threatened by it and not feel like they need to d- dismiss it, because I think that's the c- a common scenario that it's dismissed. So it's not you didn't do anything, Mr. Jones. this you just got colon cancer. But Mr. Jones thinks he may have, or that's the little tip of some sense of regret that may have, uh, in his mind, processed the sense that maybe I deserve this bad diagnosis. Or I'm angry at my god for getting, getting this bad diagnosis.
0: And do you see your role as validating the experience that people are having in that moment?
5: I, I try to. I, I think, uh, you know, I'm not trained in, in, in a, a, as a spiritual provider, but I do feel like I can flesh out some of the emotional content that comes up in those moments.
0: Chaplain Beth Loomis at Mount Auburn Hospital.
1: I've worked with people who have a very strong sense of life after death, and yet they feel as if they've done something in their life wherein they will be punished or perhaps not meet the glory of God in their faith system, and they're terrified. I have met other people who believe in a life after death, and they've felt they've lived a good enough life, they've done the best they can do, and they'll meet their loved ones again, and they're overjoyed. I have met people who feel this is it, there's nothing that happens after this, but they have been able to feel connected enough with others and with the universe and with their impact in their own little world that it's okay. You know, that was my my father's own case. He was an atheist, and he he told me at the end of his life some time ago, he said, you know, I'm just going to go back to where I came from. It's okay. And I've met others who have stated I wish... I believed in an afterlife. I wish there were more because I'm not ready to to say goodbye. so I think it has more to do with whether people feel um, that they've connected enough and they they've had enough meaning and purpose in what they've done and enough impact um, that they can let go or they're
0: Dark days for you as a healthcare chaplain when the suffering that surrounds anybody who works in a hospital can
1: feel overwhelming. There are times when one can empathize greatly and cross that barrier from compassion into... Empathy just means one becomes quite emotionally involved. And it's extremely important to be able to care for oneself and, and, and sort of catch one's breath, so to speak. Um, here at Mount Auburn, actually worked with a patient who was in hospice care, but she ended up dying in the hospital, um, a young woman. And I, she had planned a glorious wedding months ago. And it was clear she was not going to make it to that wedding. And I officiated her wedding very quickly, um, less than two days before she died. She rallied she said her vows. Um, We officially wedded her and her fiancé, and then she died two days later, and I had to do her memorial service two days after that. That took me two weeks to catch my breath. (laughs) It was um, very heartbreaking. This was a young woman. I've worked with um, some people who've kept their children at home. One, one woman years ago had this lovely three- or four-year-old who had scleroderma, which I don't know too much about, but it freezes all your muscles, and then you just suffocate and die. And um, I could still see the woman, in whatever possible way she could, having her little daughter running around in a scooter when she could still move, and then when she couldn't move, sort of this little scooter chair, and just doing everything she could to enable her three- or four-year-old to continue to be a three- or four-year-old. But yeah, when she died, I had to catch my breath for a couple weeks. So the big piece of being a chaplain is to be able to regulate your own emotional impact. If we lost that impact, there's something wrong with us. But if we indulge it or don't catch our breath, that's just what teamwork is all about, enabling somebody else to go in and work work with the next patient so you can catch your breath.
0: So is that a constant balancing
1: act for you? Constant, constant.
0: Because you... You're drawn to this work out of a strong drive of compassion for right, others. Right, right, At the same time, that could be a two-edged sword. It
1: absolutely can be. You know, life is rough. It's rough around the edges, and things happen to people that are that are incredibly painful. On the other hand, if we can be with them and take off some of those rough edges, that's what we believe in. That's what makes the difference. It does take the edge off. It doesn't change the world and for what could happen in the world, but nobody should go through something like this by themselves. A
0: chaplain comes into a setting only when a patient invites them, yes. is that correct?
3: Mm, yes. Um, certainly those who are inclined or, or to any spiritual path are, are often open to having a chaplain come into their lives. Uh, but there are also people who are wrestling or aren't quite sure what they believe and think they'd like to have a chaplain walk in the door anyways. Um, I've had some of the most meaningful conversations with people who identify as either agnostic or atheist. And... Um, it's been you know fascinating for me Uh, one man I remember in particular who described himself as agnostic he was one of the most spiritual people I ever met and I I said to him often I said you know nature is your cathedral that is where you experience a sense of the sacred and he was able to see that 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 for him was where he felt grounded and and drawn and supported in life and uh, uh, yeah the sense of what was sacred Nancy Small
0: hospice chaplain with VNA Care in Worcester, Massachusetts. She accompanies patients as their lives draw to a close. It's a time when people often ruminate over the big existential questions. Brian Noon, who passed away while in her care.
2: God is mystery. There is no way to prove that God exists philosophically. There's no way to prove that God does not exist philosophically. God is misery. As my friend Robert, my late friend Robert, at Travis Monastery and Spencer used to say God is no thing God is no thing nothing meaning God is spirit is God is that's all there is
0: Listening to the Spiritual Care Podcast, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Noel Flatt. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Kathy Graham, and Ken Rogers. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to the Hallowell Singers, to Connie Goldman and Tony Buck. Our series is presented by Humankind Public Radio. To learn more and to access our other podcasts, please visit spiritualcarepodcast.org. Thank you for listening.